Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning, church. Uh, This morning, we are continuing in our series, The Parables of Jesus, Wisdom for Life. And in this series, we've sought to uncover, sought to discover um, God-oriented or kingdom-oriented principles that we can use in our daily lives. And the principle that we are looking at today is this. We are to be ready for the coming of God's kingdom. So if you haven't already done so, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25. Today, of course, is December 10th. Uh, Like many of you, I'm not quite sure where the past year has gone. Uh, But here we are at Christmas time. And and while it's not universally true, this is a favorite time of the year for many people. We have big family gatherings and meals. We, uh, We share presents with one another. We sometimes get a little bit of extra time off at work. It's a great time of year. A word that we often hear this time of year is the word Advent. Now, for most of the world, Advent is just a cute little way to count down to Christmas. You get the chocolate Advent calendar, the purpose is you count down to Christmas, and you you enjoy a tasty chocolate treat each morning when you open up that little door. But in reality, the chocolate Advent calendar uh, is emptied before we even get to Christmas, right? But that's okay. The purpose of Advent is not merely to count down to Christmas. So it's fine if you eat it all before we even get to Thanksgiving. But Advent, in the history of the church, has served as a way to remember the faithfulness of God. The word Advent means coming or arriving. And for thousands of years, God's people longed for the promised Savior to come. So one purpose of Advent is to to reenact, if you will, or, or remember the years that God's people longed for or anticipated the coming of Christ. But Advent for us actually serves a dual purpose because this, that Savior has come. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, the coming of the Savior Jesus. You see, Advent doesn't merely look backwards. It also looks to the future. Advent looks forward to the final realization of all that began at the Incarnation. At the Incarnation, God's promise of a Messiah became a reality. In the birth of Jesus, we witness the divine stepping into human history, a moment that changed everything. Yet, as we celebrate the historical event during Christmas, we also embrace the hope and the anticipation of what is yet to come. As we marvel at the wonder of God's Son born into the world, we look forward to the day when He returns in glory and establishes His eternal kingdom. Advent is not merely a commemoration of what has been, but a joyful expectation of what will be. In Matthew chapter 24 and and chapter 25, where our text is located today, Jesus is talking to His disciples about that day. He's talking about the coming of God's kingdom and how important it is to be ready for that day. And like I said, that's the point of today's parable. Christians are to be ready at all times for the coming of God's kingdom. And so let's read this parable together again. We are in Matthew chapter 25, and we will read from verse 1 through verse 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. 
But the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. In the course of preparing for this text and researching this text, I I heard another pastor make reference to an article. It's an article that was published earlier this year, and the article began with a story. Mr. A is a member of the church. He was baptized years ago, still professes faith, and shows up routinely on Sundays. While he isn't known for possessing much love to Jesus or much zeal for spiritual things, neither is he known for being an open sinner. He is nice enough. He serves from time to time and doesn't avoid getting into a conversation on his way out the door. He struggles with his set of sins, but who doesn't? While he sits in the same pew every week, truthfully, not many would notice if he left. He is not exactly a model of a hearty believer, but he is a member still, different members, different gifts. Is he growing in holiness? You can't really tell. Is he increasing in his knowledge of Christ? It's hard to say. Does he really love the brethren? Well, what exactly do you mean? Does he warm at the love of God or delight in the Lord? Perhaps deep down. You've attended church with this person, maybe overlapped in a small group with him, but for all of that, his heart for his Lord hasn't surfaced much. He blends into the pew from Sunday to Sunday like a fake plant in the corner of the sanctuary. The years pass. He raises a family. His daughter sings in the children's choir. His wife occasionally cooks meals for church gatherings. He never commits grave immorality. He never promotes heresy. He never stops coming. His gravestone eventually lies, uh, reads, Here lies Mr. A, Christian, husband, father, churchman. After the author tells this story, he, he quotes Jesus a few times. It begins with Luke chapter 14. Therefore, salt is good, but if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. In Luke 13, a man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And we have a couple verses from Revelation. The first one, Jesus said, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And a few verses later, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. 
a saltless professor thrown into the manure pile, a fruitless fig tree cut down, an empty reputation exposed, a lukewarm sip of water sip, uh, spit out of God's mouth. And then the author wrote, I tremble at how many men and women follow the gentle slope of religious duty and even church membership peacefully into hell. The parable we are looking at today is speaking about the saltless, fruitless, lukewarm Christian in which Scripture provides warning after warning after warning. Hopefully you've observed this yourself over the past week, oh, the past several weeks, but parables possess a distinct ability to engage us. Yes, they teach theology, yet their true power lies in, in causing us to be introspective and in, in causing us to ask ourselves questions. They compel us to ponder whether the theology we embrace has genuinely permeated our lives. They challenge us to evaluate the influence of our beliefs on our actions and on our character. So with that in mind, let's dive into this text. And the first thing I want you to see is the character of the bridesmaids. The character of the bridesmaids. Again, this text is talking about the coming of God's kingdom. In the prior chapter, uh, the focus isn't explicitly on the imminent arrival of God's kingdom, but rather it centers on the return of Jesus. And, and yes, those two events are very closely linked, and we see that in the language that Jesus uses. In, in chapter 24, verse 44, he says, For this reason you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. And now with our text today, Jesus says, at that time, when the Son of Man comes, then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. So we have this wedding scene, and, and typically in this cultural context, on the night that the wedding feast was set to commence, the groom would journey to the bride's home. Now this moment marked the culmination of what is called a betrothal period, which might be likened to a modern day engagement, but it was often much more formal. There may have even been a contract between the two families. And, and so at the end of this betrothal period, the groom would engage in a conversation with the parents of the bride. And he would be seeking their permission for her to accompany him to the wedding feast. And in an effort to honor their daughter, it was customary for the parents to intentionally keep the groom waiting. So the groom arrived at the house, he would present his case for taking the bride along, and the parents, in turn, would purposefully delay. They would engage in conversation, they would prolong the process, and the longer they delayed the groom, the greater honor they bestowed on their daughter. But once the parents granted permission for the bride to join the groom, the wedding party would join them. Now our text references these Ten virgins, and the, and the way that we can think about them is they have an intimate relationship to the bride. They are friends of the bride. Perhaps the closest thing we have to this would be bridesmaids. It's not a perfect comparison, but for our purposes, it's close enough. Now, once the parents granted permission for the bride to join the groom, the wedding party would join them. And they would illuminate the streets with uh, lit torches and they would make their way joyously to the awaited wedding 
feast. And so that's the context of, of weddings in this culture, and we see a glimpse of this in this parable. And again, this is likened to the coming of kingdom. And so if it's likened to the coming of God's kingdom, we have to understand what the different figures in this story represent. We know that Jesus must be there. And in this parable, Jesus must be the bridegroom. And, and that makes sense, right? In the parable, the bridegroom is delayed. Well, we live in the period of the delay. Jesus is telling his disciples that he is going to leave for a while before he comes again in glory. And Jesus shares this parable with those who assume they're part of God's kingdom. Thus, the, the virgins, the bridesmaids, they represent everyone professing to know the bridegroom. Consider this. Each virgin was invited to the feast. They were integral to the celebration, right? Yet, yet the pressing question arises. If these ten bridesmaids symbolize those who profess Christ, then why aren't all of them admitted to the feast? And it compels us to ask ourselves, will I be received at the feast? We have to remember that this was given to the disciples of whom Judas was among them. Now how does this relate to us? The church is often described using terms like the invisible church and the visible church. The invisible church includes all genuine believers across all time united by their faith to Christ. There are no false converts in this invisible church. This is in the realm of God. On the other hand, the visible church represents local congregations. These are tangible gatherings of believers who meet regularly for worship and ministry. And here at West Haven, we have a visible expression of that church. Comprising of individuals who profess faith in Christ, who participate in uh, the ordinances, and, and who actively engage in the life of the congregation. And you might be wondering about the distinction, and in truth, the difference is subtle. Ideally, there wouldn't be a difference between the visible and the invisible church. However, we live in a world marred by sin. We face limitations, and, and while each local church should seek to confirm the genuine faith of its members, we can't peer into the depths of a soul. And so, despite our efforts, we also acknowledge our limitations. We can't do what only God can do. We can't see into your soul to know if you are truly saved. And so, while we strive for a visible church mirroring the invisible church, we recognize our limitations in that pursuit. The ten virgins of this parable are every single person who considers themselves invited to the feast. Perhaps they've professed faith in Christ. Perhaps they've been baptized. They might have even taught a Sunday school class or preached from a pulpit. They might serve on a leadership committee. They might be a part of the kids' ministry or the student ministry. They might lead or attend every single senior adult fellowship. They might serve on the music team or clean windows on Thursday nights or, or make and deliver donuts on Tuesday mornings. Have I excluded anybody yet? The ten virgins represent all those who profess Christ. They include those who truly possess saving faith. But they also include those who merely profess faith in Christ. Do you hear the difference? 
There is a difference between possessing saving faith and professing saving faith. So we have these ten virgins, all of them, invited to the wedding feast. And and we see that five of them were foolish and five of them were prudent or prepared. They all brought their lamps. Most likely this was a a torch with a a rag wrapped on the end around around the top that would be dipped in oil. And and when lit, the lamp would remain lit. It would give up off light for about 15 minutes before we would need to add more oil. And so all ten virgins have the lamp. But only five have extra oil. We see in verse 3, when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. The wise came prepared for anything, including a long delay of the bridegroom. The foolish did not. And so in these first couple of verses, we're starting to see the characteristics of these ten virgins. They're are some similarities, but there are some very significant differences as well. And those will become more evident as we consider readiness versus regret. Continuing with verse 5, Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. Like I said earlier, we live in this period in which the bridegroom is delayed. In Scripture, much more than in just this parable, we see the relationship between Jesus and his church likened to a groom and a bride. I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that Jesus came the first time to get engaged, and he's going to come the second time to claim his bride. But right now, we live in this period in which the bridegroom is delayed. And it seems like the bridegroom has been delayed a long time. And this is a difficult world. This is a weary world. We get tired. But let's consider this for a moment from God's point of view. And I think the words of Peter will be helpful. In Peter's second letter, he, he's teaching on this future coming of Christ. And he wants us to see the glory of heaven. But it's hard because in many ways, if not every way, heaven is incomprehensible to us. And so, for example, Peter is trying to teach us about the longevity of the joy that we will experience in heaven. And the simple answer is it will be an eternity's worth. But we have a hard enough time thinking about next week, let alone eternity. And so Peter does something with human language to help us understand in an imperfect way God's perspective. Peter says, do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. This is Peter's way of showing us what eternity will be like. It's Peter's way of helping us understand the perspective of God, where he sits. And from that perspective, at least in terms of, or language that we can comprehend, Jesus has only been gone for two days. But even with this shift in perspective... Peter knows that we need to know why he is delaying. 
And in the verses that follow, he says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned And a few verses later, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace. Meaning, don't meet him with regret. Meet him with readiness, spotless and blameless. And and regard the patience of our Lord. Regard that patience as salvation. This period in which the coming of Christ is delayed, it's, it's challenging. But Peter assures us that God is faithful. He will come. And his delay is ultimately for us. It's to ensure that we are ready when he comes. In this parable, all the bridesmaids are the virgins and they got drowsy and they fell asleep. They got tired. Now there's nothing wrong with them sleeping. Notice all ten of them fell asleep. The prudent and the foolish. The error came when the five fell asleep without first being prepared for the bridegroom. And while they were sleeping, behold the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And just like that, for the five foolish virgins, instant regret. The bridegroom was delayed. They got tired. And the five who were foolish essentially says, I'll sleep now and get prepared later. That's like us saying, I'll make a profession of faith, Christ, a profession of Christ now, but I won't start living for him until later. I know Christ hates sin, but I love this sin, and so I'm going to continue living in this sin until later. I know in my head that Jesus is Lord, but in my heart, I'm still Lord. Do you hear the problem with that line of thinking? You can profess to know Christ every day of your life. You can walk down an aisle and recite the sinner's prayer every Sunday. You can be baptized every other day of the year. You can memorize scripture. You can memorize systematic theology, creeds, and catechisms. And you can be the most knowledgeable in the doctrines of scripture and not be saved. Because if you are truly saved, you'd be ready for the bridegroom. You would not delay in living obediently for him. You would not delay in killing your sin. You would not delay by uh, not delay putting yourself under his authority. And I'm not saying we ever do this perfectly, but what is the inclination of your heart? Is the inclination of your heart to obey or is it to wait until later? The bridegroom came and the five foolish virgins experienced instant regret. They knew they were not ready, and they asked the five prudent virgins to give them some of their oil. And they said, no, go out and get some oil for yourselves. And you might be thinking, well, that doesn't seem very kind on the part of the prudent. But here's what we have to remember. Their loyalty is to the bridegroom. These torches, when when lit, they would last for about 15 minutes, after which you would need to add oil. And the prudent understand that if they were to give some of their oil to the foolish, then all of the torches are going to go out before they arrive at the wedding feast. It's midnight. There's no electricity. It's very dark. And if there's no light, don't you think that would completely ruin the ceremony? And so it's because they are loyal to the bridegroom 
that they can't share the oil. And the main point for us is this. Your preparation can't be transferred to somebody else. You have to be prepared yourself. Now, I'm speaking to everybody, but I think there's a unique danger here for younger people. If you are in high school or younger, listen up. You can't get into the wedding feast on the coattails of your parents' faith. You can't get into heaven on anybody's faith but your own. Your mother can't do it. Your father can't do it. Your brother or sister can't do it for you. Your pastor can't do it for you. Lily and Isabel, for you, I'm both father and dad, but I can't, I'm both father and pastor, but I can't do that for you. Only you can make this preparation. I was listening to a podcast this week, and the pastor made the comment, Jesus saved you from your sin. He does not save you from responsibility. Are you prepared for the day the bridegroom returns? Because there are significant consequences. The foolish were not ready. Instead, they faced a lifetime of regret. And at that very last minute, they tried to get ready. And next, we're going to see the consequences of their unreadiness. While they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him at the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. All ten of these virgins claimed to know the bridegroom. They were all supposed to be at the feast. These five foolish bridesmaids, they thought they were going to be there. And right here, we learn of the consequence of a nominal, superficial profession of Christ. Have you merely made a nominal, superficial profession of Christ? Friends, see the implication of that type of religion. The consequence is eternal separation from God. If our acknowledgement of the Lord Jesus Christ is merely in words, if our Christianity exists only in name, if we are not wholeheartedly devoted to the lordship and authority of Jesus Christ, the consequence is eternal separation from God in a place called hell. They thought they were going to be there, even though they were late, even though they did not make the necessary preparations in the time they were given. They thought they were going to be let in. They said, Lord, Lord. Whenever you see a name repeated like that, it's a way of expressing personal intimacy with someone. These five thought they had a personal relationship with Jesus, but he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. This might be the most terrifying parable, but it relates to what I consider the most terrifying teaching of Jesus in, in Scripture. Listen to the similarities in Matthew chapter 7. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many, did you catch that? Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. 
Simply making the claim that you are a follower of Jesus or merely possessing the external symbols of a commitment to him, such as baptism or participating in the Lord's Supper or or being a member of a local church or living a moral life, those things do not inherently signify a genuine relationship with him. True Christian discipleship originates from a heart and a mind that has been transformed by the grace of God. This internal change, Matthew often calls it repentance. And it naturally yields positive, tangible outcomes. It naturally reveals readiness. If you are truly saved, you will be ready. And you will ensure that you are ready by living in obedience to all that he commands. When facing the Lord on on that day of his coming, if your plea is, Lord, Lord, wasn't I baptized in your name? Wasn't I an esteemed member of West Haven? What didn't I show love to my neighbors? If those are your sole claims, Jesus' response will be, I never knew you. So if we want to ensure that we don't hear those words, what do we do? Whatever we do, we we know that it must be a mere profession of, it must be more than a mere profession of faith. It must be more than living a so-called religious life. It must involve an intimate personal relationship with him where our trust in the gospel is the foundation for our very existence. It's a trust that goes beyond our mere words. It's a trust that shapes every part of our life. And when are we to do this? We're to do this now. Look at verse 13. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. We do not know when the bridegroom will come. But we do know that he is coming. And we are to live lives ready for his return. The theme of this entire chapter, and and Mike preached on this chapter last week also, but the theme of this entire chapter is living a lifestyle of readiness. Failure to prepare for that day, meaning failing to devote your lives entirely to the lordship of the bridegroom, is an insult to the bridegroom. It's an insult. To the Savior. On the other hand, if you love Him and you cherish Him, you will be ready and you will stay ready to meet Him. Are you ready to meet Him? If not, the time is now. And you can do that from right where you sit. It's simple. If you have not repented of your sins and trusted wholeheartedly, in the profound work accomplished by Jesus through his life, death, and resurrection, then do so now. To repent of your sins, it means to turn from them. Repentance, in its truest sense, is this transformative act of turning away from your sins and not not merely acknowledging them, but seeking, actively seeking to distance ourselves from them. It's understanding that our sin creates a chasm between us and God. And it's only through a genuine repentance and trust in Jesus' redemptive sacrifice can that breach 
be healed. So sitting where you are at, you can turn from your sins and you can earnestly seek forgiveness by faith in Jesus Christ. He is our only hope. It's a transformative act. It's an inward awakening that leads to an outward change in how we live our lives. Now perhaps you need further clarity. Perhaps you want to talk to a pastor in greater detail about what it means to be a follower of Christ, or maybe you have in the last 30 seconds or so made a decision to follow Christ. If, if that's you, as, as always, you can uh, come talk to us in the foyer, or you can fill out the Connect card and place it in the basket at the back of the worship center. But, but I also want to do something a little bit different today. In a few minutes, the band is going to come and lead us in one more song. Uh, and during that song, I'm going to be standing right down here in this front row next to my wife singing this song. But if you have something you need to do, if you have something you want to talk to a pastor about, when the band starts playing that first song, you take your first step and you come talk to me, and Pastor Mike is over here. He will be available as well. So as soon as the praise team plays that first note, you take your first step. You know, this has largely been a message of warning for us, but let's not leave without a great reminder. While Jesus is yet delayed, and while this season is difficult, he is coming. And when he comes, his dwelling place will be with us. He will dwell with man. Listen to what John wrote. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning, or crying, or pain, for those things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes, will inherit these things. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. As we quote, close, I want to quote Legan Duncan. But I want to make his words my own. He said, on that last day, as our congregation gathers before the Lord, and we hold hands before the throne. I don't want one of you to be unprepared. And so to miss on hearing those beautiful words. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Come and enjoy the glory that I have prepared for you. Friends, now is the time. It is that urgent. We do not know the day, nor do we know the hour. If you need to get right with Jesus, now is the time. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we know that your word is living and active. It is, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It, it pierces to the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. We know that it's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of, of our hearts. Father, this is a, a challenging parable. It's a sharp warning that pierces us. And, and we pray that you would grant us the humility to, to heed this warning, to not merely hear it, but to let it transform us from within. Father, there is an urgency that you have conveyed to us in this story. And we pray that the urgency would stir within us a readiness and a fervent desire to be prepared for the coming of the bridegroom. Father, we pray that you would forgive us for the times when we've been complacent in our faith. We pray that your spirit would fill us anew, that we might would shine brightly in anticipation of your arrival. Father, may this parable not be a cause for fear, but rather it be a catalyst for a deeper and a more intimate relationship with you. May it inspire us to, to live lives that are marked by vigilance and faithfulness and a burning passion for you. Help us to live each day with a sense of preparedness as we eagerly anticipate the glorious return of our bridegroom. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen.